Good morning. The scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 17 through 36. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are now under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. But you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that, God, that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd was shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thank you, Diane. Uh, my name is Harrison. I'm the associate pastor here at Hope Chapel and thankful to be part of our preaching team. Um, when I was in the third grade, I was at school early one day playing the game Oregon Trail. Any Oregon Trail people here on the computer? Oregon Trail is a game about as old as time itself, uh, where you would journey as pioneers across the country in wagons. And you would have to ford rivers and maintain livestock. And if you made it all the way to the end without dying of dysentery, which is the typical 
way you would die. Um, you would have to raft down in this edition this long river, dodging logs and waterfalls, and then you would beat the game. I had never beaten it as a third grader, and, but this time I made it all the way to the final river, and I had gone pretty far down until I hit a log and my raft sank, killed everybody, and I was devastated and yelled out from my innermost being a word that I had heard my brother say a few times. <laughs> And it was crap. (laughs) Crap. Uh, It was just me and Miss Godwin in this class before school. And Miss Godwin comes up to me and she says, "Uh, what did you say, Harrison? I said, "Uh, crap. She said, that is a very bad word, Harrison. And I said, it's not a cuss word, is it? And she says, it is a cuss word. Very bad. So before this moment, this encounter, my conscience had not felt bad really in the slightest saying this word, but then seeing the effect that this word had on Miss Godwin and the clashing that we felt as a result, I was uh, devastated of having said a word that Miss Godwin considers a cuss word in front of her. So saying, saying crap is a small example of a huge category of decisions that we face as Christians every day in which your conscience might differ from your neighbor which can lead to clashing. Take these for example. Uh, Should we drink alcohol as Christians, and how much? One drink? Two drinks? Just beer and wine? What about liquor too? What kind of media should we consume as Christians? All of it? Game of Thrones? Disney? Harry Potter? Should we vote, and for who, in our presidential elections? What political party should we as Christians be a part of? How should we discipline our kids? Should we spank them? Um, How should we uh, dress for church? A full suit? T-shirt and shorts? Uh, Or something in between, kind of like whatever I wear to church? Uh, Should our sanctuary be all black with big screens and cool lights and smoke machines? Or should it be white paint and brick walls, and a cool wood background. Notice uh, all these questions are questions that Scripture doesn't necessarily speak directly to, questions that your salvation does not write on, um, but questions that we might need to answer nonetheless, questions that you may care deeply about, and questions where your conscience might really differ from that of your neighbor. And these are questions frankly, that can often divide a church in two. So in the early church in Acts, a lot of these questions were packaged together into one big category, and it was this. Should uh, a Christian, should you still follow the law given by God to the Jews that they had followed for centuries, should you still follow the Mosaic law or not? It had already been clearly stated that no one's salvation depended upon this question. Remember back in Acts 15, a while ago, some Jews had been arguing that the Gentile Christians had to follow the law to be saved. And they had a big presbytery meeting with all the elders and apostles got together to correct this misunderstanding. And they said that one is saved through faith in Christ alone. And that one did not need to keep the law to be saved. And that ruling was sent out to all the churches. But after this was cleared up, there still remained the question, so we won't be saved by the law, but shouldn't we still follow the laws God's given us? that we've obeyed our whole lives, the laws that the whole Old Testament raves about as good and perfect and true, 
Doesn't God want us to do that? And does he really want us to start doing things that we viewed our whole lives as bad, like eating unclean meat that was sacrificed to a pagan idol? Now, I need to mention, there were some parts of the law that were not being debated, that everyone unanimously agreed were still to be followed, and that was the Ten Commandments. Jesus was clear that they are still in effect for everyone, and that they were actually way more strict than what the, Jew, the Jews had originally thought. Remember the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave, murder is not just killing someone, but it's being angry at them in your heart. And adultery is not just sex, but it's lusting after somebody too. So there wasn't debate about that, but there was a lot of debate about the other parts of the law that had been either fulfilled or changed by Jesus. Circumcision, the purity laws, the dietary restrictions, things surrounding the temple. Should we still follow the law in these other areas? And what do we do if our conscience differs from the person next to us in the church? Now the cool thing was, there was actually an official answer from God on this, And it's what I'm going to call in this sermon, the loveliness of Christian liberty. The loveliness of Christian liberty. I'm excited to talk about this doctrine with you this morning. Um, It's a doctrine I think many American Christians may not know about, um, which could have saved a lot of churches a lot of heartache during the 2020 pandemic era. Um, It's a doctrine that's responsible for the three C's framework that we did uh, earlier as a church last year. Paul and the apostles in this passage practice this doctrine. And my hope is this morning that you will leave with an understanding of the basics of Christian liberty, that you'll see its loveliness on display by Paul's practice of it in this passage. And lastly, you'd also see the ugliness of its opposite, which is called legalism, which is contrasted with liberty at the end of our passage. So that's the setup of the sermon. One is the loveliness of Christian liberty, Contrasted with to the ugliness of Christian legalism. Hopefully, seeing those two in action, you will leave with a deep desire for the first and a deep aversion for the second, which I think would lead to a lot of shalom in your life and the lives of those around you. So before we dive into to Christian liberty, let's, let's pray. Jesus, uh, you know that as a church we face so many decisions that are gray, uh, where many biblical principles could be applied, where we don't know how to proceed forward, where we might disagree with our neighbors. And uh, Lord, we need uh, to hear from you of what it looks like to walk forward together in those areas. Um, Would you give us wisdom today, Lord, through this passage? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the loveliness of Christian liberty. First, I'm going to explain what is Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the doctrine that says that in all things that are not directly commanded by God, what, we, what some might call the non-essentials, Christians are free to choose out of their spirit-led hearts one of many choices to the glory of God. So on the one hand, God's revealed very clear, essential, black and white commands to us and truths that you must follow. Like Jesus is the Son of God, you must worship him alone. Yet there are many decisions that you face in your life that are not directly spoken to by God in that way, where you are given freedom to choose how to best glorify God and love others in this gray decision as you apply biblical principles to your individual life and story. Um, Like, for example, what type of school should I choose for my kids? 
Paul talks about this liberty in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans 14. It'd be good to read through those if you want to learn more about this doctrine. And he's answering the question in those passages, should we now eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, and I'm generalizing what he says here, is there is liberty. You can eat it or you cannot eat it. The food laws, on the one hand, are no longer in effect. So there's no direct command from God anymore on this. Uh, also, he says, idols aren't real. So it's just meat. And it's possible to eat that meat which God made to the glory of God. He also says it's possible to refrain from eating that meat to the glory of God too. You have liberty. There are two very important qualifiers to this liberty that Paul then mentions. How do you choose then, if both of them are okay before God, how do you choose what to do? Paul says that your individual conscience is your guide here. Your conscience is the voice in your head that tells you this is right, this is wrong. And as you know, in some of these cases, our consciences may differ from one another in the church. Paul says in, in this case with the food offering to idols that some people had strong consciences in certain areas. Some people had weak consciences. The strong conscious people could eat the meat, sacrifice to idols with no guilt, and do so to the glory of God. Strong conscious people maybe today in certain areas can go to yoga. They can praise God as they stretch without thinking at all about the Buddhist undertones of what they're doing. They might could watch Game of Thrones without thinking about lust or struggling with lust at all. Strong conscious people might could eat a portion of ice cream and thank God for this amazing thing without having to eat this entire tub and be drawn into gluttony. Weak conscience people, on the other hand, felt very guilty about eating that meat sacrificed to idols. They felt like they were worshiping that idol by doing so or giving assent to it. And so Paul says, your conscience is your guide. If you are a weak conscious person in this area, he says, do not eat. Because you're going against God in your mind. He says it's actually sinful to violate your conscience in this way, even if there's no real law against eating meat out there. So some Christians ate the meat, some Christians didn't, and their individual consciences guided them in those decisions. And both, Paul says, are bringing God glory through it. So that's the first qualifier, is your conscience is your guide. The second qualifier he gives is you must use your freedom to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the, this is the crucial one people forget about. The purpose of your freedom is advantaging others. Paul is responding to a situation where some strong conscience people would eat that meat sacrificed to idols in front of the weak conscience people, probably saying something like, this is my right and I'm doing it. I don't care what you think. And Paul was noticing that was very unloving. Some weak conscience people would feel very offended. And other weak conscience people would see this and be led to eat themselves, which was actually sin for them because they were violating their conscience by doing so. Paul sees all this and he says, no, strong conscience people, you're grieving your brother in Christ and destroying the one for whom Christ died with your freedom. The purpose of your freedom is the opposite. It's to love your brothers. So Paul says, if my eating meat makes my weak brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Though I am free from all, I've made myself servant of all. To the weak, I become weak. To those under the law, I become as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. 
what he's talking about is the second qualifier is I'm using my freedom to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it's for. So to summarize this doctrine of Christian liberty, in the non-essential areas, there's much freedom to choose one of many choices. But that freedom is qualified by your conscience, which is your guide, and it's qualified by the needs and consciences of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You must choose the path that most advantages them, not yourself. That's the doctrine of Christian liberty in a nutshell. Now some of you uh, have seen this doctrine abused by people. Maybe someone who lived a very unwise and licentious lifestyle, violating all kinds of clear commands from God in the name of Christian liberty. That's the improper use of Christian liberty. And this morning, I actually want to talk about the proper use of it. I mainly want to see how Paul and the Jerusalem Christians live this out in this passage. As we look at it now, be on the lookout for loveliness or beauty in how they practice this. So look in verse 17, your passage. You can look, look in your uh, worship guide, has it, or your Bibles. So when we, this is Paul and his, and his squad, uh, had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, some important background here. Jerusalem is Jewish central. It's Mosaic law, people central. James is the leader of the Jewish contingent of the church. Uh, And so Paul, on the other hand, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Coming back from many unclean Gentile lands, having just become a Gentile to the Gentiles and done all sorts of unclean sort of things. James and these elders' consciences were likely far on the weak side. And Paul's was, was likely far on the strong side. But I wonder, did you notice anything beautiful in this encounter between these two different kinds of people? There's sweet fellowship that we see between the two different parties. There's real excitement about what God's doing among the Gentiles in an unclean world. Even as Paul explains things that he had done that James in his conscience might not have been comfortable doing himself. He's still able to glorify God at seeing that. This is because, I want to suggest, they knew about Christian liberty. This doctrine created space for this deep fellowship and mutual celebration among diversity of consciences. Let's continue in the passage. God had also been working among the Jews. Look at the next verse. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. There's a problem now. They're all zealous for the law, meaning their consciences tell them God would still want them to follow it. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. So there's this rumor going around about Paul that he teaches Jewish Christians to give up their law, which is actually not true. Remember what we just said, the doctrine of Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, Paul's posture toward believers who wanted to keep following the law was to affirm their liberty to do so and to encourage the Gentile Christians to not make them go against their conscience and stop doing it or to offend them. So James knows this rumor is not true. And so in verse 22, he says this, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. 
So the leaders in Jerusalem have a plan to correct the misinformation that's out there. It's a plan that hopefully will get Jerusalem believers fully on board with Paul. So here's the plan. We have four men who are under a vow. This is the, the Nazarite vow from the Mosaic Law, a special Mosaic Law kind of way of setting oneself apart for, for God for a time, um, kind of giving oneself to the Lord in a special way. Verse 24, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. So these four men's vows are coming to an end. And at the end, they're supposed to offer a sacrifice in the temple for purification. And James suggests that Paul pay for the sacrifice out of his own pocket, which was expensive and was a sign of great piety. And he suggests that Paul purify himself along with them. The point is that Paul is going to be using his freedom in Christ to follow the law. Even more than that, to do exemplary law-abiding things, sacrificially showing that he clearly affirms that a Christian, even himself, can live out law-abiding things to the glory of God. So they summarize, thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. So James proposes, Paul, become a Jew to the Jews that you might win Jews. You are free to do that, Paul. Use your freedom in these areas to love your weaker brothers and give no offense to their consciences. Now this is actually not a new idea in Acts. James had already recommended similar things to Gentile Christians after that big Presbyterian meeting in Acts 15. They, they had said, Gentiles, you don't need to keep the law to be saved. But the Presbytery did recommend Gentiles keep parts of the law for the sake of their Jewish brothers. And James repeats this here again in verse 25. Look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So the Presbytery recommends these Gentile Christians follow the law in four areas that law-breaking was particularly offensive to their Jewish brothers. They were to use their freedom to abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols, and to abstain from eating meat killed, uh, not in a Jewish way, so strangled instead of letting all the blood out. Um, that's the strangling, that's the, from the blood. Um, and lastly, they were to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the, the rest of the New Testament makes clear that sexual immorality was not an area of freedom for the Christian. Uh, there were clear commands from God on this. It was one of the Ten Commandments. But it was one the Gentiles often struggled with. And it was particularly offensive to the Jews. Uh, so the Presbytery includes it here as a reminder. By the way, still don't do that. Um, but the food laws, they did have freedom to violate. Paul is clear. But they were to use their freedom in those areas to, to love and serve their Jewish brothers by following the law. So what does Paul do with this recommendation? Verse 26, then Paul took them in. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul follows through on the suggestion he becomes a Jew to the Jews. And this is not a new practice for Paul at all. In Acts 18, he had entered into his own Nazarite vow for the sake of his Jewish brothers, which involved him not shaving his head for a time, him abstaining from wine, and him avoiding certain impure situations and objects. In Acts 16... He had Timothy circumcised as an adult to not give offense to the Jews. 
In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul describes voluntarily undergoing Jewish synagogue discipline for blasphemy. Paul brings himself there to get his 39 lashes from Jewish authorities for a crime he knows he did not commit. And he does this in order to not give offense to his brothers and to stay in the official Jewish community. Paul used his freedom over and over again in incredibly sacrificial ways just to advantage his brothers and win them to Christ. I'm wondering if you're starting to see the beauty and the other-centeredness of this doctrine. Isn't it so much more Christ-like and beautiful than my freedom is for me? It's my right. I'm doing it. I don't care what you think. Isn't it so much more Christ-like than a church dividing in two over a non-essential issue? Everybody who wants masks over here, everyone who doesn't want masks over here, and never talk to each other again. How often did you hear someone say in 2020, they need to conform to me? I wonder what Paul might have said in 2020, thinking back to those moments. Maybe something like, my conscience tells me I'm free to not wear a mask. But I know my brother might feel in danger or offended if I don't. And he comes before me. So I will use my freedom to advantage him. I will joyfully wear a mask around him. To the maskers, I'll become a masker. Or maybe you would have said, my conscience tells me it's far more biblical and godly to wear a mask. But I know my brother's conscience differs. And God's given him freedom in this area to glorify God with his own conscience. I'm going to celebrate him doing that in his no-mask decision, even if I might stand a few more feet away. I wonder what the church would have felt like in 2020 if every person fully embraced this doctrine and sought to use their freedom to advantage others. I wonder what kind of witness the American church could have shown to our country, which was really struggling to figure out a way forward in the midst of that conflict. Now, I need to say something that you might be wondering about. In many of these decisions, there might be a more biblical choice and a less biblical choice. There might be sound reasoning and some faulty reasoning. There might be an okay decision and an even better decision. But the thing is, with the non-essentials, you are a limited, fallen human being trying to discern wisdom in the gray. And the loveliness of Christian liberty is it creates space for you and your brothers and sisters to be in that process together. Your conscience will change a lot over time. You may realize a non-essential decision you once thought was black and white is actually pretty gray. And there are three or four different paths that are equally biblical in their own way. You just couldn't see it. You may realize in 10 years, man, my brother's conscience and views during 2020 way more accurately reflected scripture than mine did. Christian liberty gives space for that process to walk in that gray together to the glory of God following our consciences and loving each other as the top priority in the midst of that. And that is the loveliness of Christian liberty. Second, we're going to look at the ugliness of Christian legalism. So there's another way, different than liberty, and it's the opposite way. It's choosing to bind your brother's conscience to fit yours, to limit your brother's God-given freedom by making a man-made law and enforcing it as God's law. This is known as legalism. 
It might sound something like this, with the force of this being from God. Don't drink, chew, or go with girls that do. (laughs) The Bible can only be rightly read in the King James Version. True Christian worship has no instruments. A true Christian would never vote for Joe Biden. A true Christian would never vote for Donald Trump. Any true Christian must go to this protest. Any true Christian would never go to that protest. A Christian cannot have black walls and cool lights in worship. The windows have to be open. These are all man-made laws that might have good wisdom behind them in different ways, but man-made nonetheless that bind our brothers and sisters in an area where God and his word has intentionally given them freedom. It's legalism, and it's ugly. It's the opposite of lovely. So let's see an example of it in this passage, and, and similarly to the last one, this time be on the lookout for ugliness in the midst of these, this legalism. So remember Paul, we left him in the middle of using his liberty to sacrificially love his Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to show that he supports a Christian's following the law. But then another party shows up, Jews from Asia, and they are very legalistic. So verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed of Paul's purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with them in the city. And they supposed Paul had brought him into the temple. So the first thing this legalistic group does is actually slander Paul. Similar actually to the, the rumor going around Jerusalem that said Paul was teaching the Jews everywhere to forsake Moses which he wasn't. These Jews are now saying Paul is against Israel, against the law, and against the temple, which is the trifecta of favorite Jewish stuff. By saying this, they're making a categorically untrue black and white statement about something that is actually much different in reality and much more complicated and nuanced. For instance, Paul is for Israel. That's why he's trying so hard to win them to their Messiah. He's an Israelite himself. He says he has unceasing anguish for them and that he himself would be cut off if they could all be included. Paul is also, we know, for the law. He says the law is exceedingly good, but he teaches, like all the apostles, that salvation was never meant to be found in it. And he's also not against the temple, but he proclaims the temple building points to a more true temple, who is Jesus, whose body is now actually um, where God dwells in the church. So these statements from the Jews from Asia are untrue. Paul's actual stances are way more favorable and just more complicated than what they're saying. So this is rightly categorized as slander. And notice they also next assume the worst about Paul. They see Paul with a Greek Ephesian in the city, and they assume without evidence that he has taken this man into the temple and defiled it. This is more black and white thinking. It's not just Paul's stances that are all bad, but it's also his actions and himself. Paul is all bad. And this is sadly a trend that we see throughout church history with legalism. Legalism at its heart longs for black and white. It starts with subtly adding new rules to Scripture to make a gray area seem clearer. 
the more confident the legalist becomes in this new rule that he's made, the more he feels every Christian must live this way to please God. Suddenly, you notice the legalist is bringing the same aggressive life-or-death energy to a non-essential debate, say about a Supreme Court nominee, or about whether a Christian should eat Fruit Loops in the morning or not. The same life-or-death energy that that, 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 that that person would bring to the, the debate about whether Jesus is the Son of God. And those with different consciences then become villains. Because under the legalist new rules, this person is willfully going against God himself. So then the legalist naturally begins assuming the worst about this person's motives and position, which exacerbates everything. And this, this process ends with creating an echo chamber of slander, a mob that can prop up this black and white reality for quite a long time. And that's what we see play out in this passage. And I wonder if you've ever experienced parts of that in your Christian life, if you've ever been on one side or the other of one of those mobs. Let's continue with the passage. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Luke now is describing an anti-Paul, violent mob, just like we saw in Ephesus in Acts 19. Remember that one, the other mob that Paul recently encountered? The difference is, that mob was an Artemis-worshipping, orgy-defending, pagan Greek mob. And uh, would be more predictable um, to an early Christian. This mob is a God-following Jewish Christian mob. It's from within Israel, the people of God themselves. They want to kill Paul, which really is the tragic end of legalism. It's the killing of our brother in Christ, whose conscience is different than ours. And like the mob in Ephesus, the Roman leaders become the sane ones that intervene to protect Paul from genuine injustice. So the tribune of the cohort, the Roman leader, comes in. He at once, verse 32, took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. This is another similarity with the mob in Ephesus. The legalistic crowd is also confused. It doesn't even agree on what Paul actually did wrong. And the crowd is not to be talked to or reasoned with by this Roman leader. It says, as he, as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, which is a quieter place. When he came to the steps, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now imagine how sad this would have been for Paul, who had done everything in his power sacrificially to show his affirmation of the continued use of the law. It's super ironic that they found him uh, purifying himself in the temple and assumed that he was against both the temple and the law. Um, imagine how sad he would be, though, if his own people totally ignore his sacrifices. They wrongly assume the worst about him. They slander him, and they want to kill him. He has to be protected by a Roman from his brothers and sisters. Are you starting to see the ugliness that legalism can have? The legalists are doing to Paul the exact opposite of what he did to them. Paul used his freedom and his strong conscience to sacrificially bend his practices to fit that of his brothers and sisters, to win them to Christ. 
The legalists refused to see any good in Paul. They forced their consciences upon him and didn't even give him the chance to clarify that he really affirms their practices before they try and kill him. The ugliness of legalism. This can sadly show up for, for us in many forms. The one we've seen probably the most in the last few years is political legalism. My view of America's immigration or America's president or America's economic policies, my view is the only one that God would approve of. I cannot affirm anything good about the other side. I assume the worst about all their motives for their position. They are just selfish. They're just unlearned. Just outdated boomers or entitled millennials. With the social media now, it's easier than ever to create the echo chamber of slander, right, that props up the black and white viewpoint. And this, sadly, this, this practice divided many brothers and sisters in Christ with different consciences, didn't it? It's political legalism. One that I'm particularly susceptible to these days is the legalism of ministry style. This is uh, looking down on other churches and Christians because their consciences cause them to make different decisions about what to put on their church sign, what size of church they have, what vibe of worship they have, what the preaching looks and feels like. I'm tempted to judge them. And I don't think about the fact that they're following their consciences to the glory of God. And God is using them for his glory in ways that he's not using me and, and our church. And I want to be able to celebrate with them like James did with Paul. I wonder for you, where might legalism be creeping into your life? I once had a pastor who would preach a heady, intellectual, 30-minute sermon in an outfit like mine behind a podium to a church of white UNC students and professors. Then he would drive down the road to an AME church and preach an hour and a half, call and response, incredibly hyped sermon with no podium, while being drenched in sweat, constantly wiping his forehead. I don't know which was his true form, because he had no legalism of ministry style. Paul, in this passage, reminds me of him. There's a better way for us. It's the loveliness of Christian liberty. And we're using our liberty for the sake of our brothers and sisters to build them up in Christ. Let's end with this. What can motivate us during this time of church transition, maybe, where we find ourselves in? What can motivate us during the next American political election, during the next worship wars? What can motivate us to live in such an other-centered way? It's the example of the Lord Jesus who gave us the utmost example and picture of this. In Philippians 2, Paul says Jesus used the most freedom and privilege a person has ever had Jesus used that to not seek his own advantage, but to seek your advantage. He willingly became a human to the humans, a sinner to the sinners, a dead man to the dying. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He used his freedom to set you free free for you now to carry that sort of beauty into the world, to carry that beauty to the neighbor of yours that desperately needs it. Amen.